Good morning, Elevation. Well, I'm glad to be with you once again. For those who may be joining us for the first time online, my name is Brandon, and I'm the lead pastor here at Elevation in Waterloo. Glad to have you with us this morning. A number of years ago, I sat down in a coffee shop with a total stranger to talk about something uh, known as the Berkman assessment. It's kind of this personality leadership style assessment. And I was sitting down with this person who was a coach. And when we sat down, he kind of explained how this whole thing worked. And he said, all right, let's take a look at the first category. And there are a number of different measures here on this assessment, but on this particular one, it was a, a scale of one to 99. Uh, and it's not good or bad, it's just two different types of personality. And the very first question I rated a one. And he said, now that's neither good nor bad, but it just goes to show like, you know, you're very unique when it comes to this element of your personality. That for me was like the beginning of really trying to understand just how different people are from one another. If there's someone who's a one on that scale, there's also someone who's a 99. Now the Berkman assessment is just one of many tools that people use to understand their personality and how they interact with other people. Another example might be something like the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Uh, my numbers are INTJ, you might have your own combination of numbers, or a test like True Colors, or even in some cases people use something like the Spirit Animal Quiz. Now, honestly, I don't even know what that is, but maybe they, you can learn something from that, I don't know. Uh, all right, so before we dive in any further this morning, I wanna grab our kids' attention because I hear that some of our kids are sitting around and joining for the sermon on Sunday morning. So we're gonna try something a little different. I'm gonna give you a bit of an assignment and we're gonna come back at this a couple of different times through the sermon this morning. Now, you might not be a kid, but you might still wanna do this once you hear what the instructions are. So you're gonna need a piece of paper and some kind of coloring or drawing instrument. So pen or pencil crown or markers, whatever you've got handy. So in a minute, you can go and grab that. Uh, the first part of the assignment is gonna to be to draw a picture of yourself at the bottom of the page, all right? So just a picture of yourself. Maybe you wanna do a picture of you and your family or you and your friends, whatever you interest, but a picture of yourself, a person at the bottom of the page, leaving lots of space, which we'll fill up a little later on. All right, so that's the start of your assignment this morning. We're gonna talk about a different type of personality assessment, something known as the Enneagram. It's a system of personality typing that describes patterns in how people see the world and manage their emotions. Now this has been around for a long time. It's become increasingly popular recently, but some people suggest that it's been around as long as 2500 BC. Um, even the most conservative estimates say it's been around at least since the year 500 BC when Pythagoras was coming up with his theories about triangles. The Enneagram personality lists nine different types mapped on a diagram, a nine-pointed diagram, which is where the word Enneagram comes from in the Greek, and they illustrate how these different types relate to one another. Descriptions of the nine distinct personality types describe how our understanding of fears and desires can aid our personal growth. Now, we're all different, and the sooner we realize that, the better. That's the aim of the Enneagram and a number of these other inventories as well. And it's something that the Bible speaks to as well. Romans 12, verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. Or 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. So according to the Enneagram, everyone emerges from childhood with one of these nine types dominating their personality. Now it's common to find a little of yourself in all nine types, although one of them should stand out as being the closest to yourself, your basic personality type. And so if you're gonna go and do some kind of evaluation, you can do a quick test online or you can dive in a little deeper to understanding your Enneagram number, you're gonna come up with something that should really resonate with you. Now here's an example, not from the Enneagram, but from another way of understanding personality, 
birth order. A number of years ago, Melissa was talking about this. She loves birth order stuff. And so I got her this book on understanding birth order. Uh, she opened it, maybe it was for Christmas. And I remember sitting on the couch in our basement and she cracks it open and she starts reading it and all of a sudden she slams the cover shut and she's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. I can't believe what I've just read. And I'm like, what, what is it? What have you read? She said, listen to this. So she flips to the beginning of the chapter that she just read. The first sentence of the book goes like this. First of all, I want all you babies of the family to know that I'm on to you. I know you just skipped the first eight chapters and started right here. She's like, how did he know? Because there's something about us that, uh, that defines the way that we interact with the world. And for last born, for the babies of the family, at least one of the things that they are known to do is to focus on their own number first. Now, that's an okay approach. And when it comes to this series that we're gonna dive into, you're going to be drawn to paying attention to your own number and learning the most about that. That's fine. But it's also important for us to go beyond that. In order to become a balanced, fully functioning person, we want to be able to draw on some of the values of the different types, the different numbers around this Enneagram circle. What we're going to do over the course of the summer is use this personality typing model as a jumping off point as we explore nine stories of fear and desire in the Bible that can help us understand how we move in the world and what God wants to reveal to us along the way. Now, just as a disclaimer, we are not teaching the Enneagram. That's not what this is about. But at the end of July, and then again at the end of August, we're gonna have a couple of workshops hosted by someone who is trained in teaching the Enneagram, who's gonna help us engage this further. More details will be available real soon, and we'll look forward to having you jump on board with those learning opportunities as we dive deeper into understanding ourselves and one another. Now let's get to this morning's reading. Isaiah chapter six, verse one begins this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Okay, so what year was it? This is one of the strange things about reading from the Old Testament of the Bible is there aren't years. We don't really know what date we're talking about here. Um, actually, July 5th happens to be Melissa and my wedding anniversary. Now, if you were to ask us, um, well, what year were you married in? I would not respond and say, well, in the year that Princess Diana died, Melissa and I got married. That would just be awkward and strange. True, but a little awkward. I would say we were married in 1997. Uh, so the fact that you all know that we've been married for 23 years now, I expect the, the messages and the emails to start coming in congratulating us on this special day. But in the time that Isaiah was writing, a king's death was the standard measure. Now, who was this king who had just died? This is an important part of the story. So in 2 Chronicles, verses 1 and 3, we read a little bit of a background. Then all of the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. 16 years old becoming a king. That's a big deal. Now, for some reason, the first thing I thought of when I heard this was, LeBron James and his soon-to-be 16-year-old son, Bronny, and all of the media attention that's surrounding this kid wondering, will he be the next king? Will he be like his father? Will he be this NBA superstar? Well, Uzziah actually did do a great job when he took the, kingdom, when he took the role of king at 16. Uh, the passage continues saying, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now, the next 10 verses celebrate all the good that Uzziah did. 
But if we know anything about this stretch of biblical history, it's that almost no king ends their story well. So in verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. Well, what happened? As the story goes, Uzziah entered the temple to burn incense and he was confronted by the priest. He was confronted by them because even though he was the king and even though he had served God faithfully, he had no business burning incense in the temple. That was a role set aside for priests. But Uzziah didn't listen to their advice, and as a result, he broke out in leprosy and rushed out of the temple. 2 Chronicles 26, 21 says that King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. Now, no doubt, this incident was the talk of the town and maybe even the talk of the nation. I mean, think about it. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, walks out of the cottage with a bushy beard during this, his COVID-19 speeches and everyone's like, look at his beard. Everyone's talking about Justin Trudeau's beard. Well, imagine if the king of the country comes out and he's covered in this like infectious skin disease. People were talking about it. They knew that he had done something wrong and he had somehow been cursed by God for it. The warning was loud and clear. Even the king can't mess with the temple. Now, in the Enneagram model, a one has a basic fear of being bad and a desire to be good. And it's these basic fears and desires that we find in the account of Isaiah's vision. So let's go back to verse one again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you see where this is going? Every last person in the nation would have been on high alert when it came to the temple. And here Isaiah is standing right in the middle of it. Okay, so kids and non-kids who are doing this drawing exercise with me, now I want you to write the word God at the top of that piece of paper, far away from you. So your picture of you is at the bottom of the paper, and now we're going to write the word God at the very top, and there's going to be a big space in between you. An awareness that God is holy is important for our spiritual health and growth. And that's exactly what Isaiah was aware of in this moment. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, knowing what had happened to Isaiah, Isaiah immediately tries to clear the air. He's like, listen, I shouldn't be here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't deserve to be here. Somehow he felt like he was caught. It's like this image that I came across of this kid who uh, evidently was playing around in the toilet, finds himself stuck in it, and there's just nothing he can do. I mean, he's stuck. His parents have caught him. If you want some mindless entertainment, I would encourage you to Google the phrase kids caught in the act. Uh, there are plenty of hilarious pictures like this of kids getting caught doing something they shouldn't have been doing. So that's what Isaiah feels like as he's having this vision. It's like he's been caught doing something wrong, even though he didn't intend it. John Steinbeck in his novel East of Eden writes, Sometimes I think the world tests us most sharply as we're growing up, and we turn inward and watch ourselves with horror. But that's not the worst. We think everyone is seeing into us. The dirt is very dirty, and purity is shining white. 
just something about this stage of life of growing up, but it extends beyond adolescence, beyond those teenage years into adulthood, where we feel like we're so aware of all of our faults. We're so aware of how far away we are from the person that we wish we were. Um, and we feel like everyone can see all of our worst parts. Now listen, it's a good thing to avoid being bad. But being afraid of God shouldn't be the driving factor. If you're avoiding being bad because you're afraid of God, then, then something is going wrong. Now, let's move to the New Testament for a minute. Take a look at another story. A story that's actually related to the story that I told last week about Peter and Jesus. Peter and his fellow fishermen out on the waters coming in after a long, unsuccessful day of fishing. Jesus suggests them that they try putting the nets in the water just a little further out. Peter's like, come on, like that's not gonna work. We've been fishing all day. But they do it and they have this miraculous catch of fish. Well, how does Peter respond? He says in Luke 5 verse eight, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now I bet most of us have had similar thoughts, thinking that whoever we are, whatever we've done, that we don't deserve to be in God's presence, that God wouldn't use us or, or want us to be a part of what he was doing in the world because of the bad things we've done. But asking God to distance himself from us, stay away from me. That's the last thing that we should be doing. We should be inviting God's presence into our lives, drawing closer to him in those moments. Now, admittedly, with stories about people getting leprosy floating around, it's understandable. I mean, if that's who God is, well, woe to all of us. But Jesus came to reveal God's character. Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father. And so how does he respond to Peter when Peter backs off in fear? Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Again, it's a good thing to avoid being bad, but fear shouldn't be the motivating factor. In the words of the Persian poet Hafiz, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. So at the beginning of this quarantine period, I had a little more time in my hands than I was used to. And I finally got around to fixing something in our basement. We have these registers in the ceiling and one of them had fallen out and the other one was like hanging precipitously from the ceiling. And it had been like this for years. Occasionally someone would be at our house and they'd say, hey, did you notice your things come loose? And I'd be like, oh yeah, I never noticed that before. Meanwhile, it had been 15 years that I just had not got around to fixing this thing. And it was just normal in the background. Well, quarantine time came, I really had no more excuses, so I thought I'm gonna fix this. So I took some, about an hour time, found the right screws, fixed it up, and there they are. And that's how some things can be fixed, with a little elbow grease. But as we returned to Isaiah in the temple with his unclean lips and all, what we discovered is that it wasn't anything like elbow grease that he needed in order to clean up and be good. This is what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, without going into too much detail, this was a serious shortcut to the removal of sin. The people of God had this elaborate system of offering sacrifices and purification rites and the priest once a year would enter this holy place and go through this whole ritual and that was the thing that would symbolize the removal of sin. So all of a sudden in this vision for this angel-like creature to, to touch a coal to Isaiah's tongue and for him to be purified, this would have gone against everything that he understood about God's holiness. But even if God was the one who set up the temple rituals in the first place, he certainly reserved the right to override them and distribute what Robert Farrar Capon calls 
200 proof grace. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Far from keeping us at arm's length, God's holiness actually pulls us in and makes us holy too. There's a passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 15 and then 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. No, the writer of Hebrews was talking about the fact that Jesus was a new high priest who instituted a new way of connecting with God. And so the writer continues, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So here's where the final piece of this drawing exercise comes in. We have a picture of you at the bottom of the page, of God at the top, and sometimes it can feel like we are so far away from God that we have no right to be in God's presence. But Jesus came to let us know that actually we shouldn't try to keep ourselves far from God when we feel sinful, when we've done things that are bad, that God wants to draw us closer to himself. And so right in the middle of that page, I want you to draw a picture of Jesus. You can have him doing whatever he wants. Maybe he's walking on the water. Maybe he's out in the boat with Peter. Um, you can draw a picture of Jesus as a reminder that Jesus came, us, came to show us that God's heart is for us, that God wants us to approach that throne in, the, in that temple, not afraid like Isaiah was, but boldly and with confidence. Eugene Peterson writes, Consciousness of sin, of inadequacy, of unworthiness is a regular part of worship. We aren't what we should be. We fail miserably. Consciousness of sin is a regular part of worship. Despair isn't. In this place of worship, sin is matched and then wiped out by forgiveness, the assurance of pardon. We don't confess our sins so we can wallow in despair, but so we can hear the joyful words of forgiveness. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Some of you are willing to hear that this morning. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, this may be the most important thing to understand about our desire to be good. It is not a prerequisite for the love and grace of God. We come to God as we are. He offers his mercy. He touches that coal to our lips just as we are. But it's always, almost, almost always, a response. We don't do good things to earn God's love, but when we receive God's love, we just most of the time tend to do good things. Because being good requires doing good. Last week we invited our Elevation community to participate in a conversation about anti-racism, and that's one of the themes that we had an opportunity to talk about, is the difference between saying, well, I'm, I'm not racist, to being, I am actually going to be anti-racist. The idea of it's not saying like, well, I'm not bad, but I am going to actively be good. And you see a desire to be good is very different from a desire to be seen as good. If we are doing things or saying things so that the people around us or even God will think of us as good, well, well then we're missing the point. The point is for us to respond to what God has done in our lives by being the people that God has created us to be. In moving toward health, ones in the Enneagram are invited to live for a higher purpose. And so in Isaiah 6, it's God's entry into the dialogue that really gets our attention. In verse 8, Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now this is typically a duck and cover time, right? 
It's like someone asks, anyone like to volunteer for this task? Anyone want to take on this responsibility? And, and everyone's like, you know, checking their phone or looking away or averting their eyes. No one wants to step up and volunteer. But becoming a healthy and a spiritually vitalized person will require us to take action. And in the end, it was an encounter with God that inspired this Old Testament prophet to move beyond his fear and make himself available to go out and carry God's message. As Isaiah writes, And I said, Here am I, send me, hand in the air, first one to volunteer. From a place of saying, Woe to me, I'm a person of unclean lips, to a person saying, Here am I, send me. That's what an encounter with the holiness of God does in our lives. Here's the beautiful thing. Isaiah volunteered to go, and he went for a long time. Isaiah served as a prophet for 60 years, which is likely the longest of any of Israel's prophets. So who knows what will happen when you and I put our hand up and say, God, I know I fall short in so many ways. I know I don't have what it takes, but I believe you can give me what it takes. Here am I, send me. It's exciting. Now, some of us are primarily driven by a desire to be good and are primarily held back by a fear of being bad. Whether you're one or not, there's a lesson in this for all of us. So let me close our time with a word of prayer. Lord, I am grateful for the opportunity that we have as a community to gather to learn about ourselves as individuals, the way you've created us, to learn about one another and to learn about how we can live out of this unique way that you've created each of us to be in the world. And so this morning, I pray for those of us who feel this fear of being bad. I pray God that you would not allow that to remain a barrier in our lives, but I pray that instead that you would well up in us this desire to be good, but that we would realize that that being good isn't the thing that earns us your favor and forgiveness. It's just who you are. It's your holiness. It's your nature. And so God, I ask that you would encourage us, invite us to walk into that holy place, into that temple, not with fear, but with a boldness, trusting that you are able to do great things in and through us. And God, as we make ourselves available, I pray that that's exactly what would happen. Use us to continue to build your kingdom in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I do just about every week, I'm going to dismiss our time together with a reminder that you are welcome to join in a neighbors group. If you are not part of a neighbors group on a regular basis, there'll be a link in the comments section right now, and you can hop on and join the group that I'll be a part of. I want to let you know that I really appreciate connecting you with, with you in this way. I look forward to the day when we're able to do it in person. Um, but in the meantime, peace to you. Go out and enjoy the week. God bless.